and welcome to Having New Eyes, a podcast to help you look at things differently, to think, to reflect, to ask questions. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. And now here's your hosts, Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Everybody's talking about how the world's gonna Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Having New Eyes. I'm Bob Hotard, and today we're talking about power. And recently, I'm going to start out with, in San Antonio, we have a city government that has both a mayor and a city manager. And in essence, the, the mayor is your figurehead, and the city manager has all the power. Well, our city manager, former city manager, Cheryl Scully, is set to release a book this summer. And in fact, coming up on the 11th, I believe, is the revised release date. Her book is entitled, get this, Greedy Bastards, One City's Texas-Sized Struggle to Avoid a Financial Crisis. And it's about her battles with San Antonio's public safety unions, specifically police and fire unions, over their contracts, which she said, if were left unchanged, they would take over about 100% of the city's general fund by the year 2031. Well, that didn't sit too well with either of the unions. And there was a struggle. And talk about the power of government and financial control and fiscal control and money. And by the way, the title of her book actually came from one of the union heads, I believe the police union, that that said, what what does she think we are, a bunch of greedy bastards? So she said, oh, that's going to be the title of my book if I ever write one. Well, fast forward to last year, she basically got run out of office or elected to uh, to resign. What happened was, in addition to all of those things with the police and the fire union contracts, her position was basically downgraded to an X percentage of uh, a city employee's salary. And so her replacement, uh, Hispanic young male that uh, took over for her, well-qualified, took over with about half the salary, just as qualified as she was. And uh, the, the irony there speaks, speaks a lot to uh, local politics. But I thought that was a good lead-in for, for power. This week in the news, though, we have the power of education. The first week in August, schools in Atlanta, Georgia, started in-person education. And what goes viral? Uh, both, well, they have both online classes and, and face-to-face. But what goes viral is a video of a kid uh, who actually I think got suspended for doing it, or or a couple of kids, a crowded hallway with some kids with masks, some kids without, and the bedlam of no social distancing, sports athletes that were infected with the coronavirus, but still basically forced to go to school because the students didn't have choices. In fact, it was rumored and commented that they were threatened with suspension or expulsion, et cetera, et cetera, if they didn't attend classes in person. So now we have this confluence of not just the coronavirus and health, but also education coming in and saying, no, for us to get funding, you have to be in school, X, Y, Z. And I'm sure it's going to be repeated in other areas across the country. Who has the power? The administration, the school districts, are the students, do, do they have power? What about the parents? What about the ones that fu- were the, the select few who got their online classes uh, proposals or uh, submissions approved uh, so their kids didn't have to go in line? So we'll have to follow that a little bit closely about what's happening in, in Atlanta. And I'm sure it'll, it'll spread across the country as other 
school districts and school systems start to open. Uh, and we're just talking about primary and, and secondary or, or not even uh, secondary, but we're just talking about elementary, middle school and high school kids. So uh, we've talked about colleges on the show quite a bit earlier. And another in the news kind of this week, I, I watched the program from Bill Maher, Real Time with Bill Maher, and he had actress Carrie Washington, who produced the ACLU documentary, The Fight. Well, the one thing, a quote that stuck out in my mind is she said, well, the ACLU is making sure they are factoring in access to power when they are choosing their clients. Bill Maher, of course, complimented them and say, hey, you got to give it to the ACLU. They, they walk the walk. They don't just go on one side of the uh, political spectrum or the other. They go on both sides and, and uh, even talk about things that aren't as inspiring or aren't just liberal or aren't just conservative, et cetera. So many things are going on in power. We've talked about police brutality in the past on, on this show. The question can be asked, does law enforcement have too much power? We're going to dig into all of it in this hour in today's episode. There's just so much to just so much to talk about just on what's going on currently, and I've just touched on a few. But we're also going to go back in in time and let's talk about just some historical examples. and And that's a perfect time to uh, introduce my uh, co-host and uh, weekly guest, Jim Jones, a historian. I guess we're gonna we're gonna have to call you our our local historian, Jim, because uh, 44 years in uh, education and, and uh, working with facing history in ourselves, that's pretty much your forte, would you say? I guess you are correct. But at the same time, because we're framing this within the context of power, I look back upon those years because the power of memory is certainly strong and see how I have been in different arenas dealing with power. I think when we ask the question, who's got the power, it's not just one type of power, it's several types. Sitting here very close to my vinyl collection, I think about Huey Lewis, who in 1985 reminded us about the power of love. Man, the power of love, it makes a bad man good, it makes a wrong man right, it makes one man weep and another sing. Man, that's, that's power. And looking at that, because I think also from a historical context, yesterday, August 6th, was the commemoration of 1945 dropping of the A-bomb over in Hiroshima, Japan. A pure manifestation of physical power, but also the power of technology, but also showing how power shifts from the beginning of that war, when the United States might have seemed powerless when Pearl Harbor was bombed, up to the shift where we could drop an A-bomb and express ourselves with superior power. Certainly different types of power. If someone were to ask me, who's got the power? And I'm saying, well, right now, there are two very powerful pandemics going on. One of them is the virus. The virus has power. It is leaving us powerless in so many ways. But also, we are also dealing with the pandemic of institutional racism, which has gone on in our country. Some people would say, is it the government? Is it the people? Is it the president? What is this thing we have called separation of power so that 
power won't reside just within one person. I think we have a lot of issues to talk about today, and I'm going to bring in history, but I'm also going to consider some of the things that still apply from the past, even today. I thank you for bringing up the August 6th historical date. Man, you, if there is ever a example of power, there it is. And, uh, you know, I, I guess when some people look back and if you did not live through it, that was our seminal moment. And, and you know, yeah, we won the war. That was the final touchdown, if you will. But then, you know, all of the other questions that come after that come after that, all of the all of the things dealing with the the aftermath of such a display of power. You know, it's interesting, too. When I first thought of this, I said, what do I think of when I think of power? Uh, it, it was actually a military reference. It's kind of a theme that I've been thinking about recently, but I thought of General Norman Schwarzkopf and Desert Storm. Now, I think that is more of a both a, a, a leadership and maybe a, a hero, so to speak. You know, Storm and Norman, he was the guy that, was, that came in and, and uh, executed that plan to uh, invade Kuwait just perfectly. He was, at the time, the, the hero. You know, to me, it was like he had the power. There was another general, can't think of the name, the, the person, the, the general that finally went down to New Orleans in the post-Katrina aftermath. And, you know, we had images of President Bush flying over in a helicopter and just all of the terrible things going on in the uh, Superdome. And then finally, it wasn't just the National Guard. There was the image of the general in the streets and saying, look, let's do something. Let's, you know, here, put those over here. And someone was there on the ground taking charge. So was that maybe more of a display of heroism or leadership? but it certainly, it was a display of power. And uh, I want to get back to that later on, because I, I think there's this absence in our, in our country right now, or there's an absence in society of someone in power using their power for the greater good or not. Is there an absence of that in our society today? And I think there is. You phrase it as greater good. I would go back to the reference to the A-bomb because certainly there was power manifested and we quote unquote won the war, but it was a moral issue because there is such a thing as moral power. How many times have you or I or many people said, I can't do that, that's, that's just wrong. Look how this whole idea of what happened during the Holocaust still survives today during the period of World War II because it was just wrong, there was evil being perpetrated. So again, moral power is just one of those other powers, and there are usually multiples and layers of it. Let me read this quote to you, and then I'm going to ask you. So I'll give you a warning ahead of time. Okay. Uh, where do you think this is from, or who might have said it? Never has our future been more unpredictable. Never have we depended so much on political forces that cannot be trusted to follow the rules of common sense and self-interest, forces that look like sheer insanity if judged by the standards of other centuries. It is though mankind has divided itself. 
obviously my, my first thought is, well, that could be any, any, any period of time. I'm going to go with Abe Lincoln in the civil war. Just well, to, just to guess. Yeah. Well, it, it was from 1951 from a lady Ooh. called Hannah Arendt. And she's talking about the rise of totalitarianism, the power of ideas, communism, fascism, economic ideas, the rise of ideas, and among those, fascism. And she's talking about what she is seeing that is happening in the world. And it gives another example of how the ideas that people can create sometimes can overcome just sheer brute force and power. I'm thinking about just the other day when John Lewis was memorialized and I'm seeing the Norman Pettus Bridge where in the 60s, he and groups of people were beat down by mounted troopers. I mean, just beat down. We're talking blood, uh, men, women, and even children who were in that march. Man, what a manifestation of physical power. In 1920, just the uh, last week, he was carried across in a singular moment, a very solemn moment, in a caisson, his casket on a caisson, and he was saluted by those state troopers lined up as he crossed. Ultimately, people could say, well, overall, he won. It was no manifestation of physical power. What was the power of the ideas that have evolved over the years, either from the civil rights movement or the belief in people about what our country should mean? Or I'd like to flip around this thing, who has the power? Who doesn't have the power? Who are the powerless in our society that are now, as maybe manifested through John Lewis crossing the Norman Pettus Bridge, are now coming full circle and having some power of their ideas, which are overcoming, whether you call it from you know the incident of George Floyd or whatever, this whole idea of power seems to be circling above us and landing in different places so that people's voices are being heard when maybe in the past they were not. The power of voice. I mentioned a little bit earlier are students, do, do students now have any power? Are they completely powerless? Remember you mentioned uh, who were the two students that uh, tried to start the Gonzalez and Hogg. Yes, yes. So, so they showed, well, maybe we do have power, but are, are, there, are there any Gonzalez and Hoggs that are going to step up and say, wait, this is wrong. You can't force me to go to school if I have the possibility of getting sick and dying. Will, will someone step up and say that? What will their parents say? Do parents have power? That's a, it's just an interesting question because these, and it's happening here in, in Texas already. I mean, our Lieutenant governor had come out a couple of weeks ago and said, you cannot use coronavirus as an excuse to uh, not attend school this fall. If we can't get the kids in school, we can't have the programs. Uh, we can't distribute the funding. You, you know, it's about money, but it's also about power. You mentioned school. School is where we learn about power. We learn about the power of hierarchy, the power of place. We get in the class, I'm speaking for myself, we get in the class in the late 40s and 50s, and we know we sit at our desk quietly, and the power is located in the front of the room. 
You don't challenge the teacher. The teacher is right. I heard my mom say, listen to the teacher, Jimmy. The teacher is right. She's there to educate you. She's getting the, she has the power of education. It has been bestowed upon her. And now she's going to give us, parcel out little pieces of that. And we learn hierarchy. Follow the rules, do what she says. We know that we are basically powerless, maybe until we go out in the playground and we can bully someone and then we can manifest some power perhaps. But we learn it there. We learn it in our corporations. We learn that there's a hierarchy and there's a certain way that you act and a certain way that you talk when you're around some of the quote unquote higher ups because they have power. We learn it in education. I know who has power. I know that there is the community to deal with. And I have to share power when we talk about what we're going to do with education. That dialogue is going on right now between people in our community, the teachers, and the state administrators about when do we start school. And they're trying to manifest their power to get the decision that they want. And in fact, we'll probably find out just how much the teachers have power. Because Jessica Tang, my good friend, is the head of the uh, uh, Boston Teachers Union. They're saying we're not going to go in schools. It's just too dangerous. Would the teachers use the power of their striking ability? What's going to be the consequences of this? So, again, we want power. We learn about it when we're young. And maybe as we grow older, we say, wait a minute. There's the power of language and how we can sway people. There's the power of the media to give these messages. Oh, yeah, there's the power of the fear. My, my father instills it in me. There's the power of all these traditions that we have. The power of wealth. I want to be rich because rich people have these advantages. They have that power. There's social power. The homecoming king and queen. Oh, man, everybody wants to be them. They Yes, I'm not them. The power of intellect because, after all, knowledge is power. I mean, there's just so many, but as we grow and we leave school where we've got a whole (laughs) abundance of power, usually making us powerless, we're trying to acquire it in many, many ways. You you mentioned that the ability and Jessica Tang, what a great example. I spoke about this yesterday to someone and, and they relayed that somewhere in the country, maybe it was in in Boston, I'm, I'm not sure, but where the teachers actually said no, we're not going to uh, we're not going to teach if you force us to go to uh, hold classes face to face without any restrictions, and uh, so you know the we talked about we opened the show with the uh, labor unions, the power of unions, the, the the power to say look you can want the money all you want, but uh, you can want things to be the same all you want, but we're not going to end. And what are the, what's the average age of a elementary or a middle school or a high school teacher? Certainly closer to the more at-risk age than, than those that are just out of, their, uh, out of their college degree and just getting their education license, et cetera, or certificate, and, and just starting out their teaching careers. In general, they probably tend more towards the elderly, quote unquote. So we're certainly seeing the possibility that, well, maybe they have the power because, well, without teachers... Uh, you probably can't run the whole education system on substitute with substitutes. However, there's another educational power play. And what about the sports, athletic sports industry in the colleges across the country? It's the same with professional sports, but 
Look at the dilemmas with major powerhouse universities, Alabama, Notre Dame, uh, more recently, LSU, Stanford, all of these powerhouse sports programs. If you can't get people to come to games, if you can't fill the stadiums, you can't get the money for those powerhouse programs. They're, you know, taken to their knees, so to speak. So the, the struggle of that, how, how is that going to, to work out? And of course, we see it in the, in the professional teams too, struggling with man, can we get people to come to games or what if we can't? Well, I think everyone's kind of facing that reality. We can't have stadiums full in this, this fall or this, uh, this season. So what do we do? How do we, how do we operate? And all of those side questions that come into that as well. You know, in this month's uh, issue of Atlantic, uh, there is a, a journalist, Ed Young, who the title of his piece is How the Pandemic defeated America. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, it knocked the wind out of me to think, man, there is a war lost right there. And I think either because people feel powerless because of the pandemic or powerless because of uh, political uh, institutions that seem to have power over them, powerless because they don't have economic power and the Congress who has power, hasn't seemed to be considering their interest. And because I I was reading that article, I was thinking about, you know, the pandemic has now become politicized. I was just hearing Dr. Fauci the other day saying, gee, I hope people aren't going to be talking about the vaccine because with the election time coming up and weaponize this as a way of talking about it was us who got this vaccine. But education is being politicized. The economy and getting it going, that's been politicized. So in my way, I look at this and I think because we can seem powerless in so many fronts right now, the pandemic, in education, what's happening with the economy, what's happening in politics and everything, that people are, the the powerless that I refer to, that people are looking for some way to use power. I received a circular, a mailing yesterday in my mail, and a circular in the newspaper today. One of them was from the legal firm of so-and-so and and such-and-such, where they label themselves on the cover of this circular as a powerhouse firm. Go with us. We can give you legal power if you're this little person who has no power. The other thing I received was my quarterly uh, subscription from the Teamsters Union, and the Teamsters Union right in the front said, Union membership is the difference in pandemic. And they showed all the ways within the magazine of how the powerful union is helping people who, what, don't have an income. They may be one or two people and they'd have an organized and again, going back to union so that would give them power. Or maybe sometimes it's just the power of voice. We can speak up for you when you seem powerless. So, Again, right in our faces, I see it. Well, and isn't this what's got people to start the protests, the Black Lives Movement? No one's going to do anything. No one's going to, nothing's going to change unless we start to take things into our own hands, unless we walk out into the streets in protest. It doesn't matter who you are or what you look like, but if the visual, if you will, of, of solidarity, of people together saying this is wrong. 
that's uh, that's the powerless coming together. And uh, we we've certainly seen our our share of examples of, of that this this summer. That's certainly sprinkled throughout history too. Our senator Elizabeth Warren here says, "Whenever you have no real power, go public, really public. The public is where the real power is." I'm thinking of I recently rewatched "Do the Right Thing," and I'm thinking, "Oh my gosh, what a film for our times!" Here's Radio Rahim, who is put in a chokehold by the police, and basically. Murdered right there. The police realize what's what they've done wrong. They put him in the trunk and drive off. Riots ensue. People without power don't know what to do next. So they take to the streets as it is in the final scenes of the film. And they are manifesting their power. We had a, a, a death this week of Pete Hamill, who was the quintessential New Yorker a journalist for the Tribune and Newsday and several of the papers. And he was talking about an incident in 1971. He was reporting on it in Brooklyn, in the Brownsville section, where people out of jobs, uh, schools are lousy. The, there's discontent between uh, blacks, Latinos, Puerto Ricans, uh, white people, and the people are in anger, and it doesn't seem that anything is being done by people who have real power to make change, the city government. And he writes, if people say nothing can be done about Brownsville, they lie. If this country would stop its irrational nonsense and get to work, every Brownsville would be gone in five years. Get the hell out of Asia. Stop feeding dictators. Forget about airports supersonic jet transports for commercial flights, building malls and highways. This country can do anything. And if Brownsville stays the way it is for another year, someone sleek and fat and comfortable should go to jail. A great wow. juxtaposition between the people who have power and the people who are, are powerless and they hit the streets. But at the same time, how much energy is being expanded on both sides of the people who are frustrated that, as Pete Hamill says, we could do this. This is something within our capability that we could do within, what, five years, 10 years, whatever number of years, there could be a turnaround. When Roosevelt comes in to uh, uh, the presidency in 1933 in his inaugural speech, and he says, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. We are afraid of the other. We're afraid of the, of the person who is manifesting the power. We're afraid of the police. We're afraid of the people who get out in the streets and, 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 they're, and they're protesting and, and they get a little too loud and rowdy. And he had a way of using language, the power of language. And he said, this is, I'm going to act as if I were waging war. And that's basically what he did. He did some revolutionary type of things, uh, instituting social security and so on. But at the same time, we have to be careful when people use language because the power of language and propaganda is also something that we have to be aware of. You know, these, the name calling, the glittering generalities, the accusations, the Everybody says this, everybody thinks this, so come on, join everybody, the, the bandwagon approach. There's even power in the language that is being used. Well, we talked about 
last week with um, the tipping point and uh, influencers going public and the the power of that. So I uh, I agree with your Massachusetts politician there. Most definitely, that that gives you power and. Goodness, thank you, Pete Hamill. I think I might post that uh, quote. That's that's something, and uh, I, I think that goes to also this sense of nationalism that has kind of gone in another direction recently. But I think it's come from that where people are are tired of what's going on in other countries and they want to solve the problems here first, and that has certainly gone in, I guess, both right and wrong directions, if, if you look at it objectively, but there's that sense of nationalism that's here. And, and I mentioned this to you outside of the podcast, and, and I, I referenced this earlier, this concept of, and, the, and Pete, Pete Hamill's quote reminded me of this, it's, it's not just someone in power doing something for the greater good, but where is that leader coming up that says, Someone like Roosevelt that says, look, everyone stop. This is this p- pandemic is real. There's no debating it. Go to your hospital and look at the people who are sick or asked to view the wards. So all of that goes out the window. Now let's solve this. Who has the right model? Well, we're not sure. But uh, maybe uh, South Korea is has something going on. Let's take their model and one part of the country follows there. So let's say California is going to follow their model. Let's say uh, Sweden has done something that, that's uh, innovative and has attacked the coronavirus and it's been successful. So we'll take these three states and you follow that model. And this state is going to follow the XYZ country that, that uh, overcame the coronavirus quickly. All right, people, let's get to work. We've got, you know, there's that, there's that patriotism of we can do anything if we put our minds to it, but who's, who in power is stepping up to say, let's do this and get it done. And no one, we're not hearing that. We're just waiting for, you know, this agency or that agency or someone or, or it to take care of itself. And that's not going to happen. And then what, what does happen is people who just think they, they know everything or know better or feel entitled, start to speak up and start to act or react and fight and argue. And we don't have that sense of uh, oneness, e pluribus unum. What happened to that? Out of many, one? Are, is there a one anymore? And okay, that's getting a little bit out, outside of power, but I think at the core, it, it, it is about power. It is about power, and I don't think it is off. And you referred to Gladwell, and certainly I would say the power of context that Right now, there is an opportunity. Maybe it was because the death of George Floyd. I think that was a significant moment. And that certainly Floyd, when we talk about the law of the few, was, I mean, he's still a prominent figure in in foreign countries. But I think that it provided a window. It was a tipping point, but it was a, a, a window where we might say, you know, we could take some of the momentum of the people in the streets and attach ourselves to it. If you're a political candidate, man, you are going to support the people out in the protest because you're saying they're trying to end racism and that will be something positive for you. Or you might 
oppose it for the people who, again, language, I'm the law and order president. That means we're going to put this stuff down because it's a threat to what we have in our traditions, in our rituals. So I don't think you're off. I think that you're exactly right. But maybe it has to be transferred from just George Floyd, who is not alive, to people marching in the streets who are doing physical acts, to policy to something that actually changes using the law, excuse me, the power of government to enact things, the power of our own emotional support because our country is near and dear to us. When Abraham Lincoln gave his inaugural speech, he mentioned about the mystical chords of memory and the past being a chorus from the graves of the people and the battlegrounds and the communities from the past that speak to us today. He was speaking during a civil war. And they tell us, stick to who we are and our identity is a country. It was, um, it was a plea. And I think that a combination of all these things that are out there are creating a context for a few voices to rise. Maybe that comes from an election. We also have the power of the vote. Maybe that comes from prominent figures who are not running for office, but they command either through the media, their voices to be heard and people listen to them. I don't know about you, but I've had so many solicitations to join in community groups for a variety of reasons, either to keep the Black Lives Matter movement going, either to deal with the people who are don't have any kind of salaries right now and they're out of work. It's saying, let's pitch in, let's help. Now, again, they're, 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 they're kind of scattered and spread out, but will there be a unifying voice that has some power to attract us to do that as a group. I just wonder about where where we're going in terms of who is going to, I don't want to say grab power because I don't think it's um, a struggle or a fight to any one thing, but I think the things that you're specifically talking about now make sense in that I think we're seeing and maybe that's the shift and maybe that's the tipping point that we're looking at here in the, in the country and just where we're at as as a society just in the United States is the groups of individuals that see the power they have of you know simple powers the power of speaking up the power of voice you mentioned, and we're going to talk about this next week, the, the power of media. You know, we talked about unions, but just the, the power to come together, the power to protest. And I think maybe there's a shift of traditional, well, I'm going to write my congressman or I'm going to call this person and have, I'm going to call the police and have them solve this problem. Well, now I think that it, it's shifting to where people are saying, Ah, well, maybe I need to do something. I, I spoke to an elderly gentleman recently, and uh, he just commented 
we were talking about the coronavirus and we're talking about all the all of the things that we have to do differently and how life is is different and especially for someone who's in their 80s it's uh you know very scary because once uh once you get it the chances of of you surviving are probably quite higher or lower than 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 the average person and he said you know when we talked about all of these arguments with uh mask anti-maskers <laughs> and he said this country has become where we have a bunch of lazy entitled americans he said where everyone just there uh he he used the word i guess we used to call it kind of uh, stuck up <laughs> back in the day or you, you know uh, someone is we have just a, a bunch of people that that think everyone owes them something or it's there. And we talked about this last, last week, freedoms, uh, individual freedoms, but also people saying, well, no, it's my right. It's my right to choose. And my right to choose not to wear a mask supersedes your right to protect yourself. And people are arguing and fighting about this. And, uh, but I just thought that was uh, powerful in itself or, or an interesting thought of, you, you know, a lot of people have just become complacent. What what word would you use, Jim? It's just this, um, it's not a laziness, but it's just the thing of saying, you know, why aren't, why isn't everyone, why aren't, why aren't they taking care of me? Why isn't this happening? You, you know, it's this passive, we've just gotten so used to ourselves being on top, being the, being the, uh, the, the country that everyone uh, uh, looks at and says, wow, America, America is everything. And I don't want to be all anti, anti United States, but I we have to face the the facts, like some of the quotes you were talking about earlier. Well, I don't put too much trust in name calling. We all have the power of language, and that includes name calling. We're seeing a lot of it nowadays. We're seeing a lot of what we call coded language, where we may make a reference to, and this candidate will send people into your neighbor, into your suburban communities, which will destroy them. You know, coded language about certain groups of people and name calling. I just, you know, we have these divisions already. and We learned in school about the, the power of emotion. You call me a name, I am gonna be seething with anger, I will get you after school, there's going to be a fight. On my very first day of teaching, there were students that knew there was going to be a fight all the way from first period in the morning. And at the end of sixth period, at the end of the day, I swear to God, they were crawling out the windows to get to the site of the fight in which people were already circling up. We know about this idea of getting revenge. And not only that, but whoever was beaten down that day, you know, they were seething too, and they wanted to get revenge. It just never ends. Now, I'm not going to be all Pollyannish here, but there is such a thing as the power of forgiveness. The power, man, when my father did not, maybe he didn't use the words, I forgive you. But when I did something wrong, quote unquote, by his rules. And instead of, before it was child abuse, giving me a spanking, he said, I know you were just trying to do this, this, and this. And I could see that he was trying to come down on my level. We used to teach 
I used to teach in several classrooms and we had several study guides available facing history about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It was something that began in South Africa and it has since been used in Peru and Rwanda, El Salvador, Germany, many countries where they say, we've got to come together as a people and overcome our differences. And maybe that begins with forgiveness. It could be a radical concept for many people, but basically during in South Africa, during apartheid, when white supremacists, white police officers, white government people with power basically used physical power against the black South Africans, even murder because they just wanted to quell violence. And of course, we know that that's a people's way of responding, get out in the streets and be violent or be vocal. So what happened was the setup of this was such that if you were people that committed any kind of violent acts, verbal or physical, against black South Africans, if you agree to come to this tribunal, to this council, Let's have the truth, tell the truth, and let's try and reconcile. Because what will happen is if you come before this tribunal and if you speak the truth about what you did and you are there with your accusers, you face your accusers. And no matter how painful, and it is painful, it was hard to watch. Students would put their faces down. I could see their, their faces getting red because it was so painful to watch someone talking about the most horrible types of atrocities and torture and admitting it. But if you can do that, and the council says, we believe you are truthful, and we believe that you are trying to reconcile, then you have immunity, and there will be no punitive measures taken. You won't go to jail. Now, some people say, what? You tortured someone, and you didn't go to jail for it? Yes, because we said we don't want it to just be one vengeful act after another. Now. There were 22,000 people that applied for this. They said, I'm willing to do this. Of course, wow, there were a lot 22, of people. 22,000. Yeah, of course, there were a lot of people that didn't want to do it because they said, "I first of all, maybe I can't speak my atrocities. The other thing is, is that maybe they won't think I'm truthful. But there were thousands who were not given sentences because the other stipulation was, if, you, if we think that you're just trying to go light on us here, and not give the extent that was your involvement in these types of conspiracies about killing black people who were causing trouble and everything, then uh, you will go to jail. Now, it's a revolutionary idea, but believe it or not, there are people in the Congress who said, we should consider this. Just like people have talked about reparations, financial support, the power of, of finances, wealth. They said, we ought to try this to, to be able to talk with each other about this and move forward positively other than saying, you're this party, I'm that party. You're liberal, I'm conservative, and go by an identity that divides us instead of saying, you know what, we're Americans. Could we come together as Americans? Is that possible? I don't know. But Truth again- and Reconciliation Council. Wow. Yeah, that's- but, what a but again, I mean, the power of forgiveness. Oh, man. Looking back, there were many times I wish I had someone forgiving me. Not forgetting. We're not going to forget 
Hiroshima. We're not going to forget Nagasaki. We're not going to forget the Holocaust. But are there ways to reconcile these horrible moments because of human capabilities and have moral power prevail in the future? I, I hope so. Well, we, we, can't, uh, we can't play uh, Don Henley's music. We, I'm not sure I can quote it without him suing me, but uh, it's certainly it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Yeah. Interesting. It's the uh, end of the innocence also. Uh, there you go. There you go. Thank you, Don. Uh, <laughs> also, uh, you mentioned the, the mystic chords and I, I had to think, is that what Van Morrison's Into the Mystic is about? <laughs> <laughs> I had to, couldn't, well, couldn't help but wonder. If you, if you stop and think about it, we have these invisible connections to the past. You know, I want to I try and be a good person because I have these invisible connections to my grandfather, who was a role model to me. My dad, these memories, that's what Lincoln was talking about. Look look at the graves, look at our dead from all the wars that we fought and everything and the communities that are out there that are divided. Can they speak to us in these, again, he refers to them as mystical chords. The power of memory is strong. I remember teaching lessons about 9-11 and showing pictures of people, mostly guys, that, and mostly firefighters, police officers maybe, that had on their chest gigantic full chest, full frontal tattoos of the Twin Towers. And I'm wow. thinking, why? Is the power of remembering that event so strong that I ink myself, I stain myself with this? You know, we, we have these moments where we're saying, wow, let me let me think about that. Martin Luther King had that moment in 1959 when he confronted, here we might call it the power of race or difference, when he went to India where they have castes. And the power of the caste, this is all about hierarchy. The lowest caste or the Dalits are the, get this word, they're the untouchables. The untouchables. And the highest class are, are the Brahmins. And in 1959, he went to India because Gandhi, his, his hero, somebody he revered for uh, nonviolent protest, uh, had lived there. And he went and he was being introduced to a group of students among the Dalits or the untouchable caste. The introducer said, I would like to introduce a fellow untouchable from the USA. And Martin Luther King was aghast, but he was reminded this idea of caste and place, you just can't seem to get out of it sometimes. You know, on Netflix well, it right doesn't now, have to be cost. It doesn't have to be called caste either. No. <laughs> caste no. Is, is a state of of being, so to speak, in yeah. that sense. Yeah. Isabel Isabel Wilkerson wrote the book Cast which is saying maybe that's what we're really referring to when people of certain races and groups, they cannot come out of it. And I, I think that it's so powerful that it has many people in our country that are still harnessed back negatively by the power of these ideas and cast. It feels like we've dug in, 
but we've also once again barely scratched the surface. But I think we made a little dent today. I think we uh, uh, we got into it, and uh, uh, it it certainly is going to lead into next week when you know and and the themes you talked about. You know what our identity. What about just this whole uh, season? What is an American? And we've certainly uh, touched on that, and and that just it keeps. What does it what does it mean to be an American? What is an American? And you can't stop thinking about the difference of the answer to that question in 2020 versus 2019 versus 2000 versus 1920, et cetera. So, uh, Jim, it's just it's it's uh, empowering, if you will, but it's also. I think a, a clarion calling for us to to keep asking, to keep questioning, to keep realizing the power that the powerless does have, if I can say that. Well, one of the powers that we all have is the power to vote. And uh, Martin Luther King III said, my father said, a voteless people is a powerless people. One of the most powerful steps we can take is the short step to the ballot box. We have elections coming up, regardless of which side, which party you choose, we have that chance for that power. And collectively, it has changed our countries. Ask Roosevelt in 1933. It changed our country and turned it around a tipping point in that election. So I'm hopeful about what we can do with some of the powers that can be enabled within us. Thank you, Jim. Another Thank you, episode. And uh, next week, media in crisis. We'll media. see what happens. Oh my gosh, what would I do without it? We got plenty to talk about there. Exactly. Thanks again. Talk to you later, Jim. Thank you, Bob. Bye, everybody. Well, there you have it. And we hope you'll be part of this conversation as we share our thoughts and ideas. Our goal, as Jim says, is to make you think. And after you've thought about each topic, reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Having New Eyes Podcast and on Twitter at HNE Podcast. Be sure to use the hashtag Having New Eyes or HNE. You've been listening to Having New Eyes, a podcast by Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Download Having New Eyes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play for Android, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, or on any of your favorite podcast apps. Jim thanks the many students over the decades who were his teachers on a human level. Yes, he was making mental notes. Bob would like to thank his family and the many coaches, teachers, and mentors for the support, encouragement, and inspiration. Find him on Twitter at Bob H. Web Design. Some portions of today's program may have been pre-recorded. Music by Jay Kleiner from the album I Am Me, live from the living room. Stream Jay's music on SoundCloud.com. H&E is recorded in San Antonio, Texas. Audio engineer is Jason Barrera. Executive producer, Bob Hotard. All rights reserved. I'm Becky Steinmetz. Remember, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.